It's the Victorian Variety Show. Perhaps we could not devise a more effectual way to contaminate the air of our homes with a small amount of arsenical dust than by the use of wallpaper colored with arsenical preparations. The large amount of surface exposed, the feeble adhesive power of the size by which the movements are fixed, the frequent alternations of heat and cold, moisture and dryness, by which the adhesiveness of the size is still more diminished, the currents of air always circulating in a warm room, mechanical displacement by sweeping, dusting, etc., all combine to dislodge the pigments from their position on the paper and to scatter them in the form of a fine dust in the room. And this dust may be many hours or even days in settling. That the air of every inhabited room is filled with finely divided particles of matter is clearly seen when a ray of sunshine is admitted into a darkened room. That this dust contains arsenic when the walls are covered with arsenical paper has been demonstrated by analysis of the dust which had settled on the furniture. This suspended dust is swept along with the air in inhalation and is lodged upon the mucous surface lining the nasal cavities, the windpipe, and its ramifications. The mucous surface of the air passages is as truly an absorbing surface as is the mucous surface of the alimentary canal. Arsenic applied to any absorbent surface, besides being taken into the general circulation and producing constitutional effects, may produce a local inflammation in the surface to which it is applied. This may explain the frequent occurrence of catarrh and bronchitis in those persons who occupy rooms papered with arsenical wallpaper. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that generally don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Sometimes I cover a topic that I discovered fairly recently, but found so captivating that I couldn't wait to find out more about it. But I also reserve the right to revisit a topic I covered in a previous episode if I find out more about it later on, or if I find a text that addresses a topic I previously discussed in a more analytical way or from a more creative perspective, which will be the case in this week's episode. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read is taken from Shadows from the Walls of Death, Facts and Inferences Prefacing a Book of Specimens of Arsenical Wallpapers which was written by Dr. Robert Clark Kedzie in 1874 to raise awareness of the dangers of the arsenic-laced wallpaper that was popular in households in both the U.S. and the U.K. during much of the Victorian era. In the episode I did on arsenic and the wide variety of consumer products, including wallpaper, in which it appeared during the Victorian era in January 2022, 
to which I'll include a link in the show notes in case you haven't listened to it, along with all of the other sources that I used in putting this episode together. I believe I mentioned that in the second half of the Victorian era, awareness of the dangers of arsenic lace wallpaper was growing, and eventually, designers and manufacturers who used arsenic in their wallpaper, such as William Morris, started to create arsenic-free versions. And I thought this episode would be a good introduction to Kedzie, who was among those sounding alarm bells regarding the dangers of this lethal wallpaper, but, as we will soon see, did it in a rather non-traditional way that posed dangers of its own. And how a library handles a rare and deadly book of wallpaper samples, Alexander J. Zawacki explains that during much of the Victorian era, many people were aware that arsenic could be dangerous if eaten. Although it was seen as a subtle way to poison enemies, as well as maybe relatives who were seen as a burden in some way, and in some cases abusive spouses, because it was odorless and tasteless and could be easily confused with flour or sugar, many arsenic poisonings were actually accidental. So by the mid-19th century, you started to see laws being passed like the 1851 Sale of Arsenic Act in Britain, which required that records of arsenic purchases be kept and coloring agents be added to distinguish it from sugar or flour. However, the act certainly didn't ban its sale or its use in a number of products, ranging from fabric and food dyes, patent medications, beauty products such as complexion wafers, where it looks like Dr. James P. Campbell's safe brand and Dr. McKenzie's improved harmless brand regularly battled it out on store shelves, and, of course, wallpaper. When mixed with copper, arsenic can produce beautiful pigments, most notably Scheele's Green, named for Carl Wilhelm Scheele, the Swedish chemist who discovered the pigment in 1775, and later known as Paris Green and Emerald Green, but can also be lethal if it's inhaled, which is why people on both sides of the pond who were dazzled by the brilliant cues used in wallpaper designs or plastering their homes with the stuff. According to Laura Bean in In the Archives, Poison Pages, an 1887 study by the American Medical Association estimated that 54 to 65% of all wallpapers sold in the U.S. between 1879 and 1883 contained arsenic which could be lethal if it flaked or was brushed off the wallpaper and inhaled. Unfortunately, many of these people were getting sick, and they didn't know what was causing it. Fortunately, a few prominent members of the medical and science communities were catching on, one of whom was Robert C. Kedzie. According to the Michigan State University website, Kedzie, who was born in New York State in 1823, but spent most of his young life, and later his career, in Michigan, earned his Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Michigan in 1851, and practiced medicine for 11 years 
before serving as a surgeon in the 12th Michigan Infantry for one year during the U.S. Civil War. Upon returning from the war, Kedzie took a position as professor of chemistry at Michigan State Agricultural College, which would later become Michigan State or MSU in 1863, which he would hold for 39 years until his death in 1902. During his tenure at MSU, he received a Doctor of Science degree and a Doctor of Laws degree, and he also served as a member of the Michigan State House of Representatives in 1867 and as president at different times of the Michigan Medical Society, the Michigan State Board of Health, the American Public Health Association, and the Society for the Promotion of Agricultural Science. According to MSU's website, Kedzie conducted extensive research to determine that Southern Michigan was a good place to grow sugar beets and has been referred to as, quote, the father of the beet sugar industry in Michigan, end quote. He also helped to pass laws regarding the inspection of commercial fertilizers and the establishment of a state food and dairy commission and was known for actively exposing frauds in the sales of food. So, as you can see from that info dump I just inflicted upon you, Kedzie was a well-educated guy with a very long list of accomplishments in both medicine and agriculture, and strikes me as a maverick in some ways, which may help to explain his unique approach to the arsenic issue. According to Bean, Kedzie was aware of the dangers posed by arsenic wallpaper in the early 1870s, when he was first elected to serve on the Michigan Board of Health's Committee on Poisons. In an essay titled Poisonous Papers, which appeared in the Board of Health's 1874 annual report, he called attention to an 1872 Massachusetts Board of Health study regarding the popularity of arsenic-laden wallpaper and cited several cases of poisoning by wallpaper in Michigan such as one in which a girl reportedly experienced improved health whenever she left her home for a period of time, only to relapse on returning home. Kedzie later found high levels of arsenic in the wallpaper in her home when he tested it. But Kedzie didn't stop there. In the same year that the Board of Health's annual report came out, he published Shadows from the Walls of Death which Jeremy M. Norman refers to as, quote, one of the most unusual books ever issued, end quote, in an article called Robert Clark Kedzie Issues Poisonous Paper and a Poisonous Wallpaper Book published in an edition of 100 copies. The book consists of a short note at the beginning from the Secretary of the Michigan State Board of Health that sums up the book's purpose and advises against letting children handle it, a preface written by Kedzie, part of which you heard me read at the top of this episode, and over 80 samples of wallpaper acquired from stores in Detroit, Lansing, and other Michigan cities, which, as you may already have figured out from the title of Norman's article, contained high levels of arsenic. Kedzie then proceeded to to quote Norman, donate 100 copies of Shadows to librarians around the Wolverine State. Now, 
I generally try to shy away from intentionality, so I can't say whether Kedzie envisioned librarians who received copies of Shadows maybe displaying it in a prominent place, kind of like a new Stephen King novel might be displayed in the front window of your friendly neighborhood library nowadays. But it does seem to me like Kedzie's heart was in the right place. In addition to listing a number of cases in the preface, he describes symptoms of arsenic poisoning in great detail, noting that it could cause, quote, sudden and violent destruction of life, end quote, but stressed that it could occur more gradually, emulating symptoms of chronic illnesses, such as a, quote, constant cough, loss of flesh, depression of spirits, and general failure of the vital powers, end quote. For the most part, he seemed to believe retail stores that sold the paper were not to blame, because he believed clerks might not have known what was in the wallpaper, or been aware of the true dangers of arsenic. And furthermore, he expected them to be surprised to learn the dangers of the wallpaper they were selling. Instead, Kedzie placed the blame on the manufacturers, whom, he seemed to believe, knew what was going into the wallpaper and the dangers of those materials. He also included a number of so-called remedies people could utilize in dealing with wallpaper in their home that might contain arsenic. Although Kedzie initially advised against using wallpaper in the home altogether, he said that if wallpaper was to be used, he recommended having it tested. And for those whose walls were already covered with wallpaper, he suggested covering it with a thin, transparent varnish to quote-unquote fix the pigments on the paper, although he seemed to think removing the wallpaper entirely and replacing it with an arsenic-free version would be cheaper than varnishing it at the end of the day. So a lot of valuable information was included in the first few pages of Shadows, but you may still be wishing you could hop into a time machine, shake Kedzie by the shoulders, and ask, what were you thinking, man, loading your book with the very substance you were trying to warn the public against? I mean, that's what I thought when I first heard about this book. But from what I can see, it looks like he wrote it on behalf of the state's Board of Health, with the hope that an informed, outraged public might pressure legislators to take action. Later on in the preface, Kedzie wrote, quote, Many of these papers were very beautiful and very dangerous, for the arsenical colors were freely used in their toning. The agent jocosely asked me to write a puff for his house. I told him that if he would give that book of specimens, I would analyze each paper and write a puff of his house that would go into every paper in the country. The agent declined with thanks. Yet these deadly papers are offered for sale in every city and important village in our state, and their use will become more general unless an enlightened public sentiment shall banish them from our homes, or the legislature by law shall hold the shield of its protection over the heads of our people. But any legal enactment on this subject 
not sustained by an enlightened public sentiment will remain a dead letter upon the statute book. To awaken such a public sentiment, to call attention to the source of danger, and to assist persons in detecting these dangerous colors in wallpaper, the State Board of Health directed me to prepare specimen books of such dangerous wallpapers to be placed in every important library of our state." End quote. So, it may not surprise you to learn that shadows did not exactly receive a warm welcome from Michigan librarians. In fact, the vast majority of copies sent don't seem to have ever made it to library shelves. And it's believed that most of the libraries who receive copies destroy them, because for many years, only four copies were thought to have survived. These copies were kept at MSU, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Harvard Medical School, and the National Library of Medicine, which, according to Zawacki, was scanned by staff members in protective gear and made available for free online so people like me could peruse it without having to touch it. And I am eternally grateful to those individuals who made this possible. However, as luck would have it, Mark Harvey explains on the Michiganology website that a quote-unquote carefully stored fifth copy was found a few years ago at the Michigan History Center, which I believe is also in Lansing, along with MSU. You also may not be surprised to hear that these facilities take the utmost care in making sure curious members of the public and their employees aren't exposed to the book's toxins. For example, since 1998, each page of MSU's copy of the book is individually sheathed in plastic, and the book is kept in a green box, how fitting, that sits on a shelf in the library's Special Collections Division. Prior to 1998, anyone who wanted to flip through the book needed to wear quote-unquote special gloves, according to Andrew Lundeen, an MSU staff member cited by Zawacki, who adds that, quote, there were restrictions on how long you could have it out, and you had to be very careful. Don't lick your fingers and turn the page, end quote, which is something I don't do, but I greatly appreciate the smell of books, especially older ones. And I've been known to hold them very close to my face, partly for that reason. So, I could have been a goner if I touched the book before 1998. In a similar vein, Bean tells us that potential viewers of the University of Michigan's copy of the state's quote-unquote single most dangerous book also need to wear plastic protective gloves. On a visit to the university's book storage facility, Bean recounts, quote, the book was wheeled out slowly on its individual cart. The marble pattern on the cover showed through a protective thick gauge plastic bag. I held my breath as I gingerly eased open the cover. And while reading the pages, I was careful to avoid any skin contact, end quote. And if you're wondering why a member of the public would go through such a rigmarole to look at a book they can view risk-free online, well, 
I can picture some people getting a thrill from being able to say that they handled one of the most dangerous books ever written. But that's not the only reason. According to Zawacki, even though the hues of the wallpaper inside the book have faded over time, there's still a sight to behold, and a digital image really can't do it justice. Bean notes that one woman who looked at shadows after it was published was apparently poisoned by it. I don't know from this article whether it was fatal or if she just got sick and eventually recovered, but Bean believes that overall, Kedzie's campaign was effective, even though the book itself was problematic. And I can understand that. I mean, if you were a 19th century librarian who'd received a copy of a book with lots of wallpaper samples containing arsenic inside of it, hopefully you'd dispose of it as soon as possible. But even if none of your patrons found out that you've received a copy, you might mention to your coworkers or friends that you've received it, and they might be horrified at the idea, so much so that they might have the wallpaper in their homes tested. Or if they've been thinking about wallpapering their homes, they might decide against it. Or they might march into their local hardware store and ask them if they had any wallpaper that didn't contain arsenic. And eventually, stores might get so many requests that they'd start putting pressure on manufacturers to offer a safer alternative. Again, many homes in the late 19th century contained wallpaper filled with arsenic. And I can see manufacturers being hesitant to make many changes to their process until they received so many complaints they could no longer ignore them. So changes like these tend to happen slower than we might like, and unfortunately too late to save a number of people. But I think we can see how, at the very least, shadows help to get the ball rolling in the right direction. But now, I would love to know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Marissa hyphen B96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash Victorian Variety One. If you'd like to support this show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as 99 cents a month at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Marissa hyphen D96 slash support. Or you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash MarissaDF13 on my Linktree page at Linktree slash The Victorian Variety Show or on the Good Pods app. I would also greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And finally, I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, Noctivigant, a paranormal book club, for mentioning the Victorian Variety Show in their most recent episode, in which they talk about the secret history of vampires, their multiple forms and hidden purposes by Claude Lecouteur, and also have a great discussion about contemporary cultural views surrounding death, 
and talk a bit about how the Victorians treated death as well. I'm going to leave a link to this fantastic episode in the show notes, but while you're there, I would highly recommend checking out a few of their other past episodes. Even when I haven't read one of the books featured on Noctivigant, I find that the books often serve as starting points for fantastic conversations, not just about the paranormal, but also a whole lot of other stuff that we're facing today. And they've had lots of cool guests on the show as well, such as Johnny L. Tenney, Whitley Strieber, Gary Lockman, Ralph Blumenthal, and many others. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and all of your feedback, regardless of whether you listened to the most recent episode or one from farther back. I always love to find out which episodes my listeners connected with, because that gives me a better idea of what you might like to see more of in future episodes. I intend to be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but for now, I'm going to leave you with one more paragraph from Shadows from the Walls of Death's preface. I like this one because I feel like Kedzie beautifully explained why he understood the appeal that arsenic-filled wallpaper had for so many people, which I believe may have helped to make his case more persuasive to the few people who got a chance to touch the book in the late 19th century anyway. The danger arising from the use of arsenical wallpaper is increasing. Good taste revolts at the use of wallpaper with strongly marked colors and sprawling bouquets, but is gratified with toned paper in subdued colors. A delicate shade of pea green satisfies the eye much better than a blank white wall. These toned papers with no figures, or only a delicate tracery of vines and flowers, are becoming very fashionable because very beautiful. There is not in commerce a green paint so beautiful and unfading as the acetoarsenite of copper. When mixed with other colors in toning, it still gives a clear and fresh color. The temptation for the paper printer to use it is very strong. It is often used to give a delicacy to the shading, where the unpracticed eye would fail to detect any shade of green. This arsenical green is too costly to be used in the groundwork of cheap paper. In these, the green groundwork is usually a vegetable color, and the arsenical green is usually employed to imitate leaves of plants, vines, etc., or in printing bright stripes of green, and is then readily detected by the eye. But in toned paper, the arsenical green is often so disguised by combination with other colors as to escape notice, and the danger is increased by the fact that the whole surface of the paper is spread with the poison. Thank you.